0: hello and welcome to uh, obviously another uh, coffee and concepts um uh as always i'll kind of start with saying a few bits and bobs and then we'll just open it up for some discussion um you know one of the reasons why i'm doing this stuff on the four discourses is because like i want to try to articulate as well as possible what i think the uh fundamental difference is between paro theology and confessional theology and I'm making the claim and it's an arrogant claim it's probably a wrong claim right but that but that well one is that there needs to be a reformation there's always reformations there are kind of movements um uh so I'm just going to change the view here there are uh theological movements and at different times there's qualitative changes and a reformation kind of has two elements one of the elements is that it's completely different from what went before like it feels new all of the the ways of understanding basic theological terms uh, seem seem different but at the same time it feels like it's in continuity with the past there is this fundamental break, and yet it feels like it's actually revealed something that was always there in the tradition and in the text, but somehow, even though it was in plain sight, it was kind of hidden in plain sight. So what I'm trying to do is say that it's not necessarily theology, but this is part of... I think what i think is going to is a reformation so it's not that the church in its confessional form is doing something is not living up to its ideals nobody lives up to their ideals right um and there's lots of people who critique the church and, and encourage it to live up to its ideals um but this is saying no we're changing the ideals themselves we're changing kind of but we're looking at a different fundamentally different way of 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 thinking about Uh, what theology is what the church is what the practice and the theory is so paratheology right from the beginning it's always been about that and I want to use the four discourses because actually I think that difficult as they are uh, at first um, they can help articulate maybe what that fundamental difference is what that change is now most of you now are able to you know, we'll probably be able to respond with, oh, it's, you know, this idea of the, of the divided other, the contradiction, uh, antagonism, asymmetry, all of that kind of stuff, right? So, but I'm trying to kind of like give a very uh, uh, clear understanding of what that means. Um, and probably it'll be done better and differently in the future, but, but that's what I'm trying to do. So, and that's why we're looking at the four discourses. And Mm -hmm. we'll be spending still a little bit more time on them. So in this Coffee and Concepts, I want to look at one thing, because in the last talk I gave, I referenced a number of concepts, dusting, object A, we went through the four discourses, so there was a lot there. Um, What I want to do here is just concentrate on this idea of dusting, or desire, and the first discourse, the discourse of the master. So if I share screen, I think, um, yeah, you'll be able to see, I'll just put it up briefly. Um, You should be able to see the master's discourse. Is that correct? Is that on your screen? Um, uh, Which has basically S1 in the top left, S2 in the top right, uh, bottom left, barred S, bottom right A. So I'm just gonna stop sharing that again um so at its most basic level we can see this as like th- this is a diagram that's describing something in a very simple form um and it's describing our entry into language so as we've talked about before s1 is the master signifier god is the ultimate master signifier lacan says this is like the word god is a word that has like uh, that generates meaning, right? It generates lots of interpretation, which is S2. S2 is, so the first signifier, if you remember, first signifier doesn't really mean anything, uh, but then other signifiers come in. Language, language arises when there's at least two words, when there's at least two signifiers. You can't have a language with one word. Language requires at least two words. Um, and, and the most basic language we have as infants would be presence and absence, the fort daggy and the kind of the presence and absence of the mother when the child throws food off the table and it gets picked up again this presence and absence right so language requires a lot of a chain of signifiers and the first signifier uh kind of gets everything kicked off the uncaused cause theologically that's it like god is the cause it doesn't have a cause the first signifier is a signifier that isn't related to other signifiers And then it connects with other signifiers and retroactively gains meaning. So now the word God, we say lots of things about this signifier, but also we say that it also signifies something that we cannot grasp. There's always something missing. There's always something that slips out from this signifier God. And, you know, mystical discourse is very good at that, at helping us understand that this is a a really interesting signifier that can never fully be signified can never f- have full meaning there's always something slipping out of it always something missing now for Lacan, that is although god is kind of the privileged signifier of that that's very that actually tells us something about um language in general and it tells us something about our entry into language so if mother is the word of god on every child's lips you know then <clears throat> then the first words that come out of that come to us in our in our uh through our parents we don't really understand what they are we don't understand whenever they make demands of us don't do this don't do that or do this or do that that we have to make sense of those and our birth into language is really where we start to try to make sense of of this basic uh, signifier the basic demands that are made by our parents Um, now here Lacan makes a really interesting distinction between demand and desire Uh, if I'm a parent and I make certain demands of my children uh, my desire is never at one with my demand Um, so I might uh, tell my child to you know, not go out and get drunk. Well, if they're an adult, if they're like a a teenager or whatever, don't go out and get drunk, you know, be good. I want you just to go around to your friend's house and kind of, I don't know, just read books and play computer games. I don't want you going out talking to girls and doing all of that. That's the demand. But then, you know, if your parents catch you that you got a bit drunk and were chatting to this girl, you might see, even though they're telling you off, you might get a little glint in their eye that they actually kind of are quite, quite, kind of glad that that happened. And vice versa, if you don't get into any trouble and your parents are very proud of you because you've you've obeyed the demand of your, your parents, you might feel that, oh, you know what? They probably would have liked me to have been a little bit um, uh, rebellious. And maybe your parents secretly, although they get annoyed at your sibling, who, who does do bad things you all you get a sense that that's actually their favorite sibling precisely because they're a little bit like they don't do what they're told um or you know think of the prodigal son it's the son who stays at home um it gets really angry because he picks up something about how the the, the father's desire is precisely really for the one who didn't obey the demand of the father right he went out crazy spent all this money and yet the 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 child who stayed at home is like, hold on, I get the sense that <clears throat> you, you've thought more about this kid that went. You kind of like, like them a little bit more. So Lacan says that whenever a parent makes a demand, it's, it, you never fully know what they desire. Their desire is a little bit ambiguous. Um, and so a child is always attempting really to understand what that desire is. What is the desire of the other? How do I fit into their desire? What do they want of me? So these kind of questions. And those are questions that we call in psychoanalysis, the hysterical question. The hysteric is a person who is a question unto themselves. What do you want of me? Why am I here? What's going on? Right. So there's a certain questioning. So in the master's discourse, in terms of just purely the infant, the infant gets a master signifier, which is maybe the demand of the parent. The child is trying to interpret that, understand what it is, what the desire of the parent is. And they never quite get it. They never quite kneel what the parent's desire is. The parent's desire is an, an abyss, an enigma, right? That can never be fully nailed down. And that's what A means, is that the creation of this real uh, curiosity about what does the other desire, what does the other want of me, And the trick is that you can never know, not because the other is an an enigma to you, but because they are an enigma to themselves, because your parents don't even know their own desire, right? And that's what barred S means, right? The barred S means that the other who's making these demands of you doesn't even know themselves, uh, so they might, and, and, and their desire is itself constructed from what they thought their parents desired, right? So f- from a Lacanian perspective, desire is always, our own desire is always connected with what we think the other desires and how we fit into it. And so in a very basic way, when you're an adolescent and you're hanging out with some people and say just randomly You're sitting in school beside a few people. And so they become your friends. Then you're starting to go, what do they desire? What do they like? And then you're trying to work that out, interpret it. And then you maybe try and act in that way. And you take on their interest. They're in the music. So you become interested in music. They're interested in football. So you become interested in football. And so in terms of mimetic desire, you start to learn what you desire through actually interpreting what you think the other desires. But this, <laughs> you, there's no end to it. You can never get to the point where you get to someone's actual desire because their desire is functioning exactly the same way. They're working out what they desire in relation to other people, what they think others desire. Now, if you're listening to this, you know, you'll hear that this is the same as language this has the same structure as language. Words just refer to other words, refer to other words, and meaning arises out of this slippage. And at no point does a word hit the thing. At no point does a word jump out of the dictionary and just like give you a rock or a a book or whatever the word is. The words get their meaning through this constant slippage. In the same way, desire arises, desire for certain objects arises from this slippage of, of trying to interpret what the other desires. They're interpreting what the other desires, interpreting what the other desires, constructing their desire. And everybody is a split subject. No, nobody is sitting around going, I know exactly what I desire. I, I can have it and be fully satisfied. If you were like that, you'd be an animal. You'd be pre-linguistic. Right, so maybe you can get there with drugs or whatever, but you know, as soon as you re-enter the linguistic world, you kind of, you're in the, you're in the world of dissatisfaction. Satisfying dissatisfaction, but dissatisfaction. Um, <clears throat> now, um, so when you look at this graph, I've said a lot, like that's all a lot of stuff, but that's captured in these four, in these four symbols. One was, right, I, I hear the demands of my parents I try to interpret them, I'm in language, I'm trying to figure out what that desire is. I can't figure out something's missing and that generates my desire. And the, one of the main reason why I can never figure out what their desire is, is because they're a bardes they're a bar subject, bam. Um, now, I'm gonna say a little bit more if you don't mind, I'm sorry, but, um, <laughs> and then we'll open it up. Uh, this, um, uh what what, do I want to say um oh yeah when Freud noticed uh, this game and beyond the pleasure principle that his 18 month old uh uh, grandson was playing and he called it the fort game, where the nephew threw a cotton reel away the parent gave the cotton reel back the kid threw it away the parent brought it back right and and uh this is basically the most primitive form of game that all kids play and we all play as adults in some way as well and he calls it the fort da game in German fort means here and da means there or the other way around whichever it is. Um, Now that's one notion of presence and absence that the child is playing with very early on but the second form of presence and absence is more complicated and that's what I'm talking about here which is The presence of the other's desire, let's say the mother, the presence of the mother's desire that is simultaneously absent, right? It's not present and then absent. It's a presence that is absent. So now we're getting into dialectics. So very, this is where you could say dialectics begins, um, not with presence and absence. That's a non-dialectical way of thinking where presence and absence are in conflict with each other. Whenever we encounter the desire of our parents, we encounter, as I say, something that we are enveloped by that we also can't name. We're in the realm of ghosts. A ghost is the presence of an absence. So now the child feels the all-encompassing desire of the other, but isn't he really able to define what it is? That's dasting. That's, that's dasting in a nutshell. Dasting is the abyss of the other's desire the abyss of the other's desire that both generates our love and our fear. And by the way, you know, in the Bible, it talks about fearing God and loving God. Go are like, how can you fear and love? But our experience of Ding is precisely that. There is a love and a fear of the enigmatic desire of the other. It threatens to envelop us. It's terrifying. And yet it's fundamentally desirous. Um, now, an example that Freud used and I'm using a book by Richard Boothby. He talks about this A forthcoming book that will be either called as Nothing Sacred or Embracing the Void or something like that. So um, uh, he uses a little uh, motif from from Freud where he says that this woman goes into a shop and she's mortified because she thinks that the assistants are laughing at her and they're laughing at her dress. And so she leaves the shop in embarrassment Uh, But she's also kind of aroused by this experience, um, maybe sexually aroused and very intrigued by it. Uh, And then through analysis, Lacan says that her earliest, one of her earliest memories is the memory of this shopkeeper who uh, groped her um, uh, through her dress when she was a child um, and had a smile on his face. And now at the time, this wasn't a traumatizing event for her. It was maybe a confusing event, right? But later it kind of becomes traumatized and kind of retroactively means something. But but the way you can think about it is that initial experience is like an experience of the dasting. The other, the shopkeeper, the grin on his face, he is taking some pleasure through his act. Now, she doesn't know what that pleasure is. She's not old enough to understand. She doesn't get it. But she feels that she is encountering the dasting, the abyss of the other's desire. And then this later experience, which we can call objet putia, is where that encounter with the abyss of the other's desire is incarnated in a different environment. So same thing, right? Shopkeepers that she thinks are laughing at her, whether they are or not as irrelevant, but she feels that they are. And they're laughing at her dress, the significance of the dress. And they're both getting desire. You know, they're sniggering. And this shopkeeper was like, had a, you know, leering grin on his face. So the ding and the object A, <clears throat> but that precisely comes into being through not knowing what the other wants. However, as I said, the other doesn't know what they want either. And that's the secret of the the bard S at the bottom, which, and remember this, 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 this like little, um, set of symbols is trying to tell us something that we don't see that we don't usually see and everything that's below the bar is kind of like what we're not really aware of so in terms of your desire you're obviously really taken by your desire but you don't really understand it in a normal setting and you don't really realize that the other doesn't know what they desire you don't realize the other is divided um And what I'm going to do, and and where this is going, of course, is I'm saying that in Christianity, in religion, the self-divided God is is hidden. That is repressed. The master's discourse is the discourse of confessional theology. The self-divided God is is hidden. Uh, But I think the next Reformation is where the self-divided God is made manifest which we see in the Asterix Discourse. And of course, you see this through the Bible, self-divided God. But I would say confessional theology is almost designed to fortify us against an encounter with um, a God who has an abyss. You know, like I might say, like maybe I'm not a mystic, but God is, right? So like God, God there, is a, there, is a, there is an abyss within God. Um, and that's what parotheology is interested in. Uh, okay, I'm gonna stop there. When anybody want to jump in? I Ask questions, a clarification, or, or go wherever you want. <clears throat> I'll start by asking, in, oh, oh sorry, I saw somebody moving. John, were you going to say something? Nope. Okay. No. Okay. Is there anybody who wants to ask questions of clarification first? Like, is that anybody who's struggling with with these things and want to go, like, ask any questions of clarification? We'll start there, and then we'll move on.
1: I am in conscience struggling with almost everything at the moment, Yes, 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 yes. Um, So I'd have far more questions than... Really, uh, we could we could get in there. However, um, are we suggesting that the non-communication of desire is a universal thing? Because I have in mind that the first time I ever noted that the true desire of my father was not what was being told to me was when I was 16 Mm -hmm. and it was a shock to me at the time. So, I mean, if we're talking about it being a universal, surely it should be from a very early age and one should be able to, um, intuit that where that is just not my experience
0: yeah yeah no great and the truth is you're you're right as an if this is right and let's just you know so there's big if but if this is right then it's um it's, it, is, it is the experience of any creature of language, any creature of signif- any creature who uses language or signification. Which means, if there's other animals in our planet, you know, dolphins or whatever we don't quite know of, but any creature of signification, this. The Lacanian idea is that this mentioned happens. However, they would say, and I would say that it's unlikely that we. Kind of remember any of this like it's it's almost the memory of it is in uh kind of what we see as how we act as adults but that you know like the child for example is encountering constantly the desire of their siblings their parents like they're constantly in a world of desire um but not necessarily at all like asking the question explicitly like what does my mother or father desire like it's not so but yeah you are right that this is this is technically if if this is correct it is a claim to all of us no matter whether we are as i say neurotic or perverse or psychotic or autistic or any of those structures whatever we all have this to some extent And you don't have to be drawn to it yet. I will try and convince you over time, but hold, hold off. You know.
2: <laughs> I think where this <clears throat> this discourse interests me is in in the the slippage um, and and the evolution of language, where we we we're creating things that are new. Um, that there's like this granularity that happens where, or, or our directionality to the abyss, uh, you know, that, that um, it's, it's tr- it, it may be true that like, um, uh, you know, um, we don't know what we don't know about ourselves or our desire, um, but there's, there's a direction to the query into which we're asking and what we're asking of the other in relationship, and and when we encounter the strangeness or the queerness of another, like that, um, it it I think it evokes something new. Like like it, it, it there's a directionality towards um, not necessarily connection or oneness, maybe the opposite. May, maybe a great like I like the word granularity. You know where there there's a there's more language that's produced because of the abyss than less language. Yes. um the lack of knowing or the lack of absolute actually is a productive creative um uh it, the the slippage itself is get is a gift uh, of 100%. sorts
0: 100 <laughs> percent. i mean i would say this like you know the reason this is this is an answer to the question of why we suddenly kind of like jumped in terms of our in terms of what we could create from, I don't know, whatever our ancestors, let's just say chimpanzees or baboons or whatever, is that, that as soon as you slip into signification, you slip into an inability to be satisfied as in a, a quest always for the unknown, right? So as soon as you're in signification from this position, you're in the quest of, I can't name, I can't quite articulate, I don't know. As Soon as you're in that realm, you cannot have instinct. So instinct is I'm hungry. Oh, I eat and I'm satisfied. I, I, I need shelter. I build a shelter. I'm satisfied. As soon as you enter into signification, the idea is that we are not always going to not be able to be quite seated. And so therefore that's why we can build skyscrapers. That's why we can kind of technology, everything happens because and, and they can never be answered. That's the thing. We can never get to the point where we'll be seated, so our, our development will stop because we are haunted by the abyss of the other's desire. And that's why at a certain point of evolution that we suddenly just took off and didn't really take off too much biologically, but we just took off in terms of medicine, call it social evolution.
2: It's, it's also why sky, skyscrapers themselves won't last very long. <laughs> the, the the very things that we're building with this fast evolution, like don't have the the grounding of um, what what's considered stable in our instincts, uh, or you know. So
0: <laughs> that's true. So if you're saying this, which absolutely, like for example, we'll never like there'll never be the building that we, that we go, oh, we just nailed up, That's it. So the skyscraper will get bigger it'll get more thinner it'll use less more materials or it'll be completely kind of changed because the, because you never get to the point where and this is why the, the big distinction between, yeah drive and instinct we don't have instinct because instinct does get satisfaction instinct stops drive just never stops because it's always oriented to the abyss of the other <clears throat> yeah
3: We've slipped into the theory of Babel, into the myth of Babel here, haven't we? Oh,
0: Towers yes.
3: that are, g- are going to the sky and being cursed by God because man has defined language. And all of a sudden, he's given many languages and, and an inability to, to cope and to define anything. You know, the, the myth is very significant in what we're talking
0: about. Yes, I love that connection. I haven't thought of that. That's, be- that's a brilliant connection, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. But we will always face that. And coming back to your point about schism, the schisms in the church or, or religion generally are always because we think we've got it. Whenever the church grasps hold of it and goes, yeah, let's go with this one, guys. Yeah. You know, let's go with this one. This is what we've got. That's when it always fails. If you look at church history, you know, yes. as soon as it thinks it's grabbed hold of, of a truth, a definition, you know, a play, a plan, you know, and it, that's when it starts to fail. That's when schism occurs. That's when new ideas come about and the church splits.
0: Yes, <laughs> It yes. seems to me.
3: Yeah,
0: absolutely. And and like in Northern Ireland, I, I can't remember the number. It might be more than this. There's at least 27 Presbyterian denominations. Oh. um, And with the Presbyterianism within Northern Ireland, does very much like to kind of you know kind of nail things down and so it's fascinating that so many presbyterian denominations because that split precisely what you're saying as long as the 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 naming but but it can never work which is what john was saying is like because it never works because you can never get it then you're just setting up for another schism yeah
2: and i think there's something to embracing schism rather than the orthodox view of like being frightened by it like if we can can start to say no actually the weird you know unique view that you have um not only maybe i absolutely don't believe it or i i I have i have i come with so many more questions because of who you are and what you're thinking but there's something profound in a relationship that that provides that kind of dialogue that it, it, it provokes dialectic like like to be afraid of the new. Um, th- this is uh, I. I feel like that. Um, it, it's a it's a, a a tyrannical like movement towards homogeneity. You know, like that, we want everything to be the same. We want not just to participate. We want things to be the same. We want people to think absolutely alike. And and that's you know like in that's kind of like I feel like the opposite of. Um, the discourses of love and kindness and kind of the profound basis of like you know radical theology in general but like Christianity as well at least in its supposition
0: yeah Um, I mean you you I think you're articulating what what one of the ways in which you can understand what this reformation might look like because you're talking about not a difference in the what but the how so you're saying like yeah we have all these different groups and you can have those different groups, and they'll propagate and change. But what what is it possible for us to hold the what of our belief in a different way? The funny thing is, I think that's such a significant change that I think when you go to that change, you're talking about like a that's the kind of reformation. That's a different modality. Um, and Soren Kierkegaard talked about that. He said, you know, it's not the what, but the how. There's something about you know not not finding the right. Uh, like denomination or theology is the right what, but rather, and I think it connects with Hegel's absolute knowledge. It's more, oh, when you realize that it's actually this encounter with the abyss of the, of the other's desire that can never be satisfied. It generates the schisms. And if I can make my peace with that, then that's fine. So the weird thing is then you'll stay within your schism, but you'll have such a different relationship to it. <laughs> Nothing changes, but everything changes yeah the very
3: definition of death is immobility
0: very definition of death is death
3: is immobility. you know uh, you know you talk about churches dying or people or, or death within ideas and things like that. the v- mm-hmm. definition is is immobility the inability to not embrace dynamism, to not embrace the new yeah. to not understand. You know, I, I, you know, you can die before you die by just simply not moving.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's why the, the term death drive is so interesting because it has the word death, which is like immobility and stopping, and then it has the word drive, which is ongoing. So you yeah. suddenly have this weird term that's saying there's a negativity that generates. So there's death, the way you're talking about it, and then there's death drive. <laughs> and um, death drive is almost this kind of constant, yes, things die and things are reborn and, and we're, it keeps us moving, but it's not death and it's kind of like the stoppage.
3: I think the thing I'm kind of struggling with is, is the whole temptation to define things linguistically, to define things from a intellectual perspective Mm -hmm. because as soon as we do that we are holding a dead object Mm -hmm. we've almost killed the the idea by defining it Mm -hmm. so i'm just wondering what the benefit of language and intellect is in the pursuit that we are embarking in, whatever that is. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. You know, what, what is the benefit? And, you you and can't learn think, to juggle without throwing up some balls. You know, it, like. That is a really good way of putting it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, indeed. You know, you, you, you can't. That's a very, really good point. You know, there has to be mobility to get somewhere. Uh, and even if that is a complex mobility, you know, um, involving incomprehensible amounts of dynamic action. You know, um, in the study of fluid dynamics, it's all guesswork. You know, you, you, you put a propeller into a, into a pool and, and you've got billions of atoms all interacting with one another and you can never precisely tell what the result of any particular one action is. Forgive me if this is a bit of a hyperbolic example here, <laughs> but that is the case, isn't it? You are dealing with a dynamic fluid situation mm. beyond actual definition, and you can only set a certain amount of quotients, a certain amount of rules,
0: and and go, well, this generally is what happens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you yeah, now, the so one of the interesting things about this theory, but I don't think it answers your question exactly. Uh, I no. think you know there's a there's a, a you know another another dimension to what you're saying. But what, one of the interesting things about this, link, like kind of like Lacanian Lacanian kind of uh, understanding of language, is it's a way of saying because if you take it, if you, everything we've said here. If you if you take this, then it basically says there is a dimension that can never be articulated by language. So weirdly, it's, it is a theory that says not only is there something that can't be defined at the moment, but like as in in principle, we could know something, but we currently don't. Like, I don't know what's outside the door, but I could open the door and find it. Or a scientist might not know the results of a certain experiment until they do the experiment. So there's, there's a type of things that we don't know because we lack knowledge. This, this system goes a step further and says, there's things that we cannot know because unknowing the abyss of the other can never be grasped. So it is, it is a linguistic theory that interestingly says that there's something that can never be named by linguistics. Never, not even in, in theory, like there's something necessarily that cannot be named. And the, the name for this, for Lacan, is The Real, the capital R Real. The Real is the name for what cannot ever be reduced to a, to a linguistic system. So, so that's one way of answering. Is a kind of, it, is a the, it is a kind of theory of mysticism in one way, because it's a very, very kind of rigorous linguistic theory to show that there's always something that resists linguistic theory that we're caught up in however you might still go yeah but that's a really strong linguistic theory <laughs> you know and uh, you know so that's where i'm thinking you might be saying a little bit more but then 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 you might not be fully satisfied with my answer
3: i'm not sure i need to be in, that what well, this is what why do I need to be as happy with your answer? Yeah. Because actually, yeah, it, it's lovely to have these conversations and to try and, you know, define and have a have a conversation and to bring bring language to what we are trying to express. It's lovely. Mm. <laughs> yes, but if something is universally true, it's comprehensible by rocks. It's indescribable anyway. The worship is there regardless of whether we have a definition of it. Yeah. You know, and so therefore I can just say, yeah, it's lovely to define it, but I don't have to. I don't have to understand computers, don't have to understand, you know, how water flows down a river. I can just let it be as well. (laughs) You know, so so this this drive to define this drive to understand is is good and, and we've got brains for a reason you know yeah. but, but 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 on the other hand it doesn't matter <laughs>
0: here i'll I'll give you this this because this is very good it's good right i'll give you three i I go like i think in terms of this idea of the real and god i'm going like i think by definition we all have to take one of these three stances right one of these so i'm gonna and, and there's maybe even a fourth um but uh, uh which i'll mention but so one is we go that well we don't know but God knows, right? So there's a kind of, we go like, listen, we don't know, but but there is, you know, God knows the real is knowable if only by God, not by us, but by God. Secondly, um, there's something unknowable because even the absolute is unknowable to itself. So there's an unknowing in reality. Or three, I don't know. We don't know. Like it could be either of those, but there's something about, Orienting ourselves to the to the real or to the unknown, which is that it comes to the heart of faith. Now, I say there's a fourth because you could split that last one into two. You could say, well, I don't know, but somebody might know, or you can say, well, nobody could know, right? Nobody could ever answer that question. Um, so it's a weak form of agnosticism where you go, like, well, I don't know, but somebody else might have worked it out. And the strong agnosticism is, I don't think we can make a decision between those two. So. And so in a way, it might just be good to kind of have those three in front of us and to go, right, okay, so either the standard, I'm not saying all mystics are like this, but the standard mystical approach is there is something about God and that signifier God that we can never fully name, but, but God is a whole that, that we cannot wholly grasp. The second is that God is a whole, with a not with a W, <laughs> with an H, <laughs> that, that cannot grasp. God's self and then three hey that really is not something that we can know um but hey but yeah but religion is a form of orienting ourselves to the transcend to the unknown and i'm happy to kind of like to not know and actually icon originally was that third position icon was kind of like you know so um yeah, and it sounds like you're more the third, which I think is a very reasonable position. I do, although I don't want to push you into a position uh, at all. I really don't. Uh, maybe you're going. I, I like all three, but it sounds like you're maybe saying the third one, which is, I love the conversation. I love this. I love our orientation to the mystery. Um, but I'm 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 concerned about too much trying to kneel down. How we articulate what that mystery is.
3: Yeah. I, yeah, that's, sorry, I don't want to dominate. I just, I, I find it fascinating that we have been given a brain, given linguistic capability to try and describe these things that can never be frustratingly described. It's almost a curse. Yes, <laughs>
0: yes. It?
3: it is almost a curse. And, yeah. and, and, you know, one could perhaps argue the symbolism of the tree of knowledge and good evil is that curse. Yeah. A desire to, to, to define what is truth define what it is instead of just garden
0: (laughs) which by the way which by the way is a good uh defense of my position here which is like by definition because we are so drawn to the abyss of the unknown desire that we can never be satisfied so we will always always be pushing for answers always toiling Um, always toiling now i'll say one other thing about the first two is that the first one looks more like traditional physics so traditional physics was there is a, The world is in principle knowable, um, but we don't know it because obviously, you know, there's so much more to discover. So in physics, the idea with you see it a lot with some of the, the classic, the traditional physicists is that if we knew everything about the position and the location of every a particle in the universe, we could literally know everything. We could, because the universe is kind of like a, a hole um, and we could go p- back or forth. So there's kind of thing is, of course, we could never do it, but God could do it, right? So there's that. And then in, when you get to modern physics, quantum mechanics, you get to this type of unknown that isn't connected to what we don't know, but an unknown that is woven into uh, the physical reality itself. Now, but I will say that you know that's not a done deal in quantum mechanics. That's the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics that says you know that wave-particle duality tells us something ontological about reality. And uh, the, you know the more you know about the position of a subatomic particle, the less you know its velocity. That that kind of fuzziness. There's. But if you go with the with the Copenhagen interpretation. You have in in classical physics the unknown is what we don't know, but we could in principle know. And in quant, in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, uh, there is a type of fuzziness or superpositioning oh. within reality itself. Um, and then, of course, there are. Oh, and this brings me back to you, William. Um, is uh, there are also a lot of physicists who go, we don't want to make a decision on on the the interpretation right so go like we're enjoying doing all these experimentations and knowing but but aren't prepared to you know nail their colors to either you know uh, Einstein's mast or Niels Bohr's mast so I accept all of that (laughs)
3: yeah yeah I love it I love it (laughs)
0: Uh, anybody else want to jump in I didn't realize we had a few more people since I when we started there was only four of us or so but um, anybody else who hasn't said anything want to jump in
4: i was going to say something to just to something williams said at one point about the void being the creative force like i think if that i think if we're creative beings and maybe as an expression of god like because i don't i don't know it seems like this view has like god being up here and we're like i don't know what it is but if we are the expression of god we also have a creative like that
0: that void of creative force in us yeah yeah I mean that reminds me what was the artist is it Picasso who drew like, like like new 30 new or 40 at the same get to the, uh what was know, that uh a direction
4: oh sorry did I cut out oh you cut out sorry yeah the, of the say it again um if we have a void in our nature for creative purposes Oh, then, yes. Oh, yes. I heard that. I, sorry.
0: I didn't hear John. I think John jumped in very quickly. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, sorry. 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 Um, yeah, oh, no, I was thinking of, I think it was Picasso, but correct me if I'm wrong, any artist, but who drew the same picture of lilies, water lilies or whatever. Monet. Uh, Monet. Thank, money. thank you. Thank yeah. you. Look at that. It's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, but it kind of almost is like because he could never nail it because there was this void of create, this creative kind of like, you can never nail it, never quite nail it that created this. And not even just lots of paintings about different things, like the, the painting of the same thing. I think that's the kind of creativity uh, you know, you're know, you heading on.
4: The, the fun is in the discussion, the fun is in the, so like, if you're, if you're, if we're always like, I think we have to have the idea that we're all heading somewhere so that we keep doing it, but that we never get there is probably also the point. Like we yeah. probably have that contradiction in us, like that yeah, yeah.
2: I, I think there's something about the um, the hyper general, like when we're trying to talk about these big conceptual things, that's always going to breach uh, breach into some kind of talk of the mystics or the mystery um, or or the uh, diving of the abyss. But I think the power of language that's that's used in the now is is for the specific. It's it's always within parameters. It's not the thing that's trying to break parameters, though it's inviting poetry, which is the you know the, the semantics, the play of language, uh, that that that's relational and, and um, that allows for you know some new. Construct or, or meaning to arrive, so so like there's a dance there, and I, I love that Chris was joking about like we should try intuitive dance, you know, like poking fun at this, mm-hmm. but like I, I also know that this uh, um, when when we bring in the arts, Monet in particular, like uh, um, and, and uh, like he his obsession was was with color and the fact that like to look at the same thing. It, it it didn't. Uh, it wasn't just simply composed of color. It wasn't that simple. It, it, it in fact like reflected a much more complex reality. And as as he looked day after day, season after season, the kind of light, the kind of uh, context that this very same subject produced was diverse, expressive, and profound. It, it was it was a it was an ongoing gift. It wasn't a, a one-and-done, i figured out what Lily is. Uh, it, there was never an arrival point, in other words. Uh, and, and as, the, you know, I was, I, I was gonna make the joke earlier, but you know, when the question is like, when do you name a painting finished? You know, like it, 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 it can be, it falls into the, the same thing. Well, like I did, so it's the real. Um, I'm still in process, so it's unknowable. Uh, and like, and and then when like, um, I, I've given up. Well, or maybe I haven't. I, I, I fall into the unsure state. You know, this the, the 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 same kind of positioning we have with the general. I think we can apply to the specific as well.
5: Yeah.
0: Yes, and and yeah, and I I want to stick now with this Monet water lilies. This is great because I think that um, I think that you'll see with um, with Shizak one time. But like, because Shizak uses the same jokes. And the same kind of like uh, examples right and you'll see this time time again and i've i heard him once say why and i thought it was brilliant right um now he's very prolific obviously he's got like a 100 books but he goes back to the same things and his his response was um and he he kind of defined two different approaches uh but one is right you're always moving to the new, right? You do something, you complete something, you move on to the next thing, which he would call maybe a capitalist logic. You're always, you've got something, you're a bit dissatisfied with it, you move on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But he said that a kind of materialist perspective of, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, don't turn off the phone. Um, the, uh, uh, his position, a Lacanian position, is that you actually can never fully... Um, uh, exhaustively um, use up an example and so his whole thing is I use the same examples but then but he says you'll notice that I'll, I'll bring a different point out I'll tell the same joke and then I'll get something else out of it and this is like parables the reason why like we don't constantly recreate parables is weird. weird how little we do you know I've tried to make you parables, but but it's because in a sense you go back to the same parable and you realize it's never exhausted just like Monet with the water lilies, he's, he's going back to the same thing because it's never exhausted. And that is very similar to the, this Lacanian notion that it's not just the real is what we don't know. So we actualize something we understand it then we move to what we don't know and we're moving forward moving forward moving forward the idea is that the actual has potential within it the actual is never fully actualized the actual always has has an abyss within it and i think that is a very important uh a comment and, and by the way there's a political dimension to that because if you have things and so it's right you've got two options at the moment within our general system is you either don't have something you're not happy you get it and then it doesn't really satisfy you. so you have to get the next car the next iphone there's there's a certain kind of movement you get the thing you exhaust it you move forward is it possible to have something like a car that you like and you also know that it's incomplete and so you kind of start to enjoy the fact that it's got a few dents here and there and that you have to turn the key in a really bizarre way to get it to start and the you you have to use a certain technique to open the car. I have a mate, by the way, he's got a car just like that. No one could steal it because there's so many things he has to do to get the damn thing to run. Like it's so old and crappy and it's it's a wonderful car for that reason. But so there is not only uh, uh, something interesting philosophically in this or theologically in this, even politically, it's like, and this is what love is, by the way. Love is where the other is still an abyss that you do not know. They are present, but they're never exhausted. So if you keep moving from one person to another, you know, you're not, you're not really in love because you're not connecting with the abyssal dimension of the other that can never be used up and exhausted. So yeah. Anyway, I think that that's very, very important in this conversation.
5: Uh, Peter, that just made sense to me. Your description of the, of, of the, of love as the, uh, What's incomplete yet? What's what you know that? Um, I've always understood love. I've gotten to where I redefine love as curiosity, and yeah. and and it's um, it, they, they share a similar uh, root word, uh, curiosity and love, and um, this idea of taking care of or taking interest in, and the idea of, of sharing in that abyss of the other. Um, so there is some aspect then in which we can participate, in, and it sounds like in creating some of that abyss and sort of nurturing that abyss so that we are sort of always in a place of, of um, something new to know that we don't know yet. Uh, I'm thinking of René, René Magritte when you were talking about Monet and how many different ways he tried to paint lilies. I mean, Magritte sort of was a trickster of a painter at times, you know, he has that famous painting, um, this is not a pipe and yes. it's a painting of a pipe, right? I mean, he's intentionally saying, try to see something different. Yes which
0: is
5: <laughs> almost inviting you to see something of an abyss there.
0: 100%. hundred percent. Yeah, I'm glad we hit on love then, because actually love, I think, is, is as you say, it's a great way to kind of enter into this conversation. And here's the thing about Richard Boothby's book, Is Nothing Sacred, which, by the way, keep, I'm talking about him because he's coming to my wake festival, and so I read his book. But one, his, his main argument in the book is fascinating, because... It's very different from the approach that I've taken. People like me and some of the people I like, they talk about Christ, the idea of and Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and concentrate on the meaning of that. Richard Boothby concentrates on the sayings of Jesus, particularly love your neighbor and love your enemy, right? He does. So he does. And, and what Boothby argues very, very persuasively is that we start like religion is in a sense a way of orienting ourselves to the curiosity mentioned to this otherness that both frightens us and also draws us and he talks about in how you know in greek mythology that this is way up in the sky and he talks about how this changes but he says in christianity in the sayings of jesus particularly the sayings of love when he says love your neighbor and, you know, love your neighbors, you love yourself. And, you know, you can sum up the whole of the law, like love, love God and love your neighbors yourself. What is being said, Boothby says, is it's a revolutionary idea that 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 religion orients itself to this abyss uh, and to the, uh, that we can never grasp. And Christianity says that you find that abyss in the other. And that when you love your neighbor, what that really means is that you're open to and curious about and reaching out to what makes them strange and weird and what you cannot quite grasp. And that Christianity is really innovative in this, particularly in its love of enemy, which is quite a unique thing to to love this dimension of the other. So yes, love is very, very, very key to this. Um, Yeah, anyway, so thank you for bringing that up. (laughs) And I definitely recommend both of you. We'll definitely be doing a book study when it comes out um, uh, on that book. Uh, you know. uh, we're coming up to um, we've got we've hit the R mark. So just uh, fi- any final comment or thought from anybody. Uh, would people be happy with me sharing this I think this is a really good conversation I do share some of our conversations and some of our seminars I just thought this was a very uh, I really enjoyed this so I see noddings Um, so I'm gonna uh, go with that Um, yeah unless you've got email me if you don't want me to but (laughs) great okay listen thanks very much for this. I find this really, for me personally, a really enjoyable, um, uh, enlightening conversation. Um, I will see you all. Maybe next week I'll maybe pop into coffee and conversations, but um, there's plenty of stuff coming up. I don't know if any of you. I know Chris is going to be coming to Wake. Uh, I may see a couple of others of you there. Um, also, it looks like we're going to do Spark. Um, I had Spark off the list. And then a friend of mine, Erin, who's been before, she was like, listen, because I wasn't getting anywhere with the hotel. She said, I'll take over. So she took over, started conversations with the hotel. So it looks like it might be happening. So in October, that'll be a really nice uh, retreat. So anyway, thanks so much for taking part. Take care. Bye-bye.